Good morning, neighbor. <laughs> who, who here grew up with Mr. Rogers or who raised their kids with Mr. Rogers? Some of you grew up with Mr. Rogers and you didn't even know. How many of you in this room grew up with Daniel Ty- Tiger's neighborhood, right? I see a few hands there. Daniel Tiger was a, 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 a cartoon version of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood told through a, a, a cute little tiger. I love Mr. Rogers, so much so that on a trip to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, we went to his museum, and that's where he's from. And uh, Fred Rogers was a lot of things. He was a, a very kind person, um, as you can see by that introduction. He was kind of nerdy, right? But he was extremely talented, multi-talented. According to a biography written by Maxwell King, the process of putting uh, together each episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was painstaking, and Rogers' contribution to the program was astounding. Rogers wrote and edited all the episodes, played the piano and sang most of the songs. He wrote 200 songs and 13 operas. He created all the characters, both puppet and human, and played most of the major puppet roles. He hosted every episode and produced and approved of every detail of the program. That's incredible. He had a vision for the show, and he was involved in every bit of it. Here's the thing I love most about Mr. Rogers, and maybe you knew this, maybe you didn't. Everything he did was motivated by his faith in Jesus. He was an ordained uh, Presbyterian minister, um, and and in in his biography, King writes, uh, the thing, uh, his mission as an ordained minister, rather than being the pastor of a church, was to minister to children and their families through television. He saw that as his calling in life. Last week, we talked about how political forces try to use fear to motivate, to motivate you to vote or behave in certain ways, and fear is poisonous to relationships, and fear is poisonous to culture. It's used to divide most of the time. And Mr. Rogers saw all that was going on in the world around him and how scary that would be for kids and what that would do to their development to grow up with that fear. And in his pastoral heart, he wanted to develop a show to talk to them on their level and speak to their emotions. It says that his show tackled difficult topics, such as the death of a family pet, sibling rivalry, the addition of a newborn into the family, moving and enrolling in a new school, and divorce. One really powerful moment came in 1969. After nearly 200 years of American history where white people were told that they were supposed to be afraid of black people and much of American life was segregated, including swimming pools, Mr. Rogers shared a pool uh, for a foot bath with actor Francois Clemens. The two of them showed children that we don't need to be afraid of each other, that there's a new way of brotherhood, a new way of neighbor love was possible. All right, I'm not going to just preach the whole time on Mr. Rogers. But we are in a, a, a week three of a series called Christ and Culture, where we're looking to Jesus's life and his teaching in the Gospels to see how he interacted with the world around him and how that might inform how we, his church, his people, are to interact with the world around us. Last week, I shared my perspective based on my readings of Jesus in the Gospels that, that politics, achieving power through worldly systems, is not the way God intends his church to change the world. It's okay to be involved, it's okay to to be politically active, but we shouldn't expect too much because that's not the vision that Jesus has for us. And unfortunately, it seems that to to gain power in our political system, the end justifies the means, and that means corruption and misbehavior are not punished because all that matters is winning and gaining power. 
Instead, as we demonstrated here, as we sang in multiple languages this morning, God has chosen a worldwide church that crosses every possible border and boundary. A worldwide church to be his representatives on earth, not a single nation, and definitely not a political party. I bring Fred Rogers as an example today as a contrast to what we talked about last week. His posture, his tone, the love that he shared far more represents the kingdom of God than the divisiveness that seems to benefit our political parties today. It seems that they seek to perpetuate what a friend and pastor, a theologian, a friend of mine, David Fitch, calls the enemy-making machine. Mr. Rogers sought to help us stop looking for enemies and start seeing our neighbors. So today, won't you be my neighbor? And won't you look with me to the scriptures as Jesus shows us what it means to love our neighbors? This is in Luke 10. This will be a familiar parable to many. Um, It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Starting in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and when when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. For many, this parable is known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. The idea uh, is that, you know, this, this, this word Samaritan has kind of come cliché. It's kind of substituted for this idea of helping someone, doing something good for someone. But there is a much more specific and really good context. If we dig in the background of this passage, we can unpack a little bit more of what Jesus is trying to show. There's much more to the story. And let's start with the journey. The journey here. Jesus is describing a common road traveled by the people in his audience um, you know, if you, were, if you were going on this journey that time of day from Jerusalem to Jericho, there was danger. How many people have ever gone somewhere where you, fi- gone somewhere where you find yourself in the, the wrong place at the wrong time? Anybody? Anybody? Come on, Craig's, I know you've, you have. You've been all over the world. <laughs> um, I remember one time, this is a silly example, but I remember one time I was on a missions trip and, and, and I had some high school students. We went to do some urban ministry with some partners of ours in Philadelphia. 
And uh, we had gone to all the famous cheesesteak places that you could go to. And we were like, it's our last night there. And so I had the senior guys, these guys were about to graduate. They just actually just graduated from high school. We're going to go find an authentic hole-in-the-wall cheesesteak place. We're going to find the best one in the city. So we're driving around this neighborhood, and we're asking strangers, where's the best place to get a cheesesteak? And they told us about this place. And so we drive there, and at first we're like, this is the place? This uh, looks a little sketchy, but hey, we're going to do it. We're going for it. And so we go in, and we, we really started to think, hey, maybe we're in the wrong place at the wrong time when we had to order our cheesesteaks through bulletproof glass. Uh, this might not be the place for us. But we got our food, and we went outside, and we started sitting on the stoop and eating it. And then these guys came up. They were going into this place. It's about 11 p.m. And, and, and the cleaned-up version of what they said to us was, what are you doing here? And I said, well, we were just looking for a really good cheesesteak, not one of the famous ones. And they replied, you're crazy. And they laughed and went inside and said, I hope you don't get your behind shot off. That's the cleaned-up version of what they said. And we just didn't know any better. We were just thinking like, hey, we're just looking for a cheesesteak. And here we found ourselves in a place that we didn't belong and could have been dangerous for us. And thankfully, uh, nothing happened. But we could have been in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, and this is the reality of people traveling this road from, from Jerusalem to Jericho. If you go at the wrong time, you might be in trouble. If you go alone, you might be in trouble. And so most of Jesus' audience probably knew of a situation where, where they'd heard of someone or they had seen someone attacked on the side of the road, beaten and robbed because opportunities were everywhere. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright said this in his Luke commentary. The desert road from Jericho to Jerusalem had many turns and twists and brigands. Uh, brigands could lurk out of sight in the nearby hills and valleys ready to strike and a lonely traveler was an easy target. These folks had probably, like I said, heard the story or knew somebody who had been attacked on this road. So that's the journey. That's the context of what Jesus is talking about. It's a real place. It's a real road. These people knew what he was talking about. The next thing that we look at in this story to get some context are the characters. The characters of the story. Let's start with the priest. For Jesus' Jewish audience, they would imagine that a priest would do the right thing. That he would be the hero of this parable. The role of the priest in the Old Testament was to represent God to the people and represent the people to God, to stand in between God and people. Surely, this priest would know God's heart and prioritize the right things, but that's not how Jesus' story goes. The priest crossed the street. He avoided the situation completely. The next character that Jesus brings in is the Levite, and Levites were one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, they were the tribe from which all of the priests of Israel would come from. So not every Levite was a priest, but every priest was to come from the tribe of Levi. And what does that mean? It means that of all of the tribes of Israel, they knew the law. It was a part of their, their family history. It was a part of the, the culture that they were involved with. The Levites knew the law. They knew what was required for holy living in God's eyes. And again, Jesus' audience would have expected good things from the Levite. They're from the right tribe. They knew the law well. They knew how to do the right thing. But no, the Levite crossed the street and avoided this fellow Jew who was on the road suffering. Why? Was it because priests and Levites were bad people? Is that what Jesus is saying? I don't think so. It's, it's not that simple. Again, N.T. Wright in his Luke commentary says this, when he was left half dead, those who went by couldn't tell whether he was dead or alive. 
So since as temple officials, uh, it was important for the two in the story not to contract impurity by touching a corpse. It was better that they remain aloof, preserving their purity at the cost of their obedience to God's law of love. What he's saying is, these men knew the law. If this man is dead, there are strict rules about being near a dead body. They would have to do all sorts of purification rituals and, and be separated from the people for a while. And you could see the reasoning that they would have. I don't know if that's a dead guy or not, but if he is, it's gonna throw off my whole schedule. I've got important work to do for the Lord and it cannot be interrupted by this. I need to go on to the thing that, that, that I was going to, to, to the thing that was on my schedule, the work of the Lord. They have a dilemma. The law says don't touch a dead body, but the law also says love my neighbor, and which do I choose? The priest and the Levite chose the easy way. They chose to avoid. See, Jesus is building up to pointing out that they chose the wrong thing. They used the Bible, and they used theology in order to justify their decision, which shows us just how Jesus' teaching is. Genius, Jesus' teaching is here. It's genius. Because remember, this is exactly what the expert of the law is, is trying to do when he says, who is my neighbor? He's trying to muddy the waters. He wants to split hairs theologically to find a way to make loving his neighbor as easy as possible by narrowing down his list of neighbors to just those who are easy to love. Before I move on, either one of two things was going into the thinking of the priest and the Levi here. Perhaps it's this. In all of their knowledge of the law of God, they knew it word for word, but they missed the point. They missed the heart of God. They saw what felt like competing priorities, keeping ceremonially clean by avoiding a possible dead body or helping someone in need. And if they truly understood the law, they'd realize that the only way to live out the heart of God was to take the risk of helping. The other possibility is they, they knew the law and they were using the law and this dilemma to excuse themselves. And it's much more less innocent than they just didn't know any better. Just like the guy that asked the original question, they're seeking to justify themselves. They're saying, look, I've got good religious reasons why I don't just do the right thing. And this connects to what we talked about last week. This is a huge part of the problem with the way that we engage in politics. Most political engagement is limited to ideas and beliefs. You know, maybe we actively vote, but, but most of the rest of the conversation that swirls around politics is about opinions. Again, David Fitch, he writes in his book, uh, Church, it's called Church of Us Versus Them. And he says this is the one, one of the main ways that we keep the enemy-making machine going. On one side, people wave a banner saying, I'm pro this. On the other side, people are waving a, waving a banner that says the opposite. I'm anti this. Fitch would say that most of the time, these slogans are empty signifiers. They are overly simplistic, and they are far removed from the real-life realities that people are engaging with. It allows us to have a strong opinion, and it allows us to push away from people who disagree with us because they're our enemies. And... What it does is it keeps us seeing issues, but not seeing people. We see issues everywhere, but we're missing people. Fitch would say that even if our opinions are motivated by good theology, if all we have are opinions, we don't have much. 
We wave a banner that says we're pro-life, but what good is that if we never offer tangible help to babies and moms in crisis pregnancies? We wave a banner that says somebody should do something about the poor to help them, but what good is it if we build our whole lives around avoiding people who are in need? We wave a banner that say, says all lives matter, but what good is that if we stand silent when t- entire ethnic groups continue, continue to struggle for equal treatment under the law? You see, our opinions may come from truth. They may come uh, from a good reading of the Bible. They may come from good theology, but if they just stay opinions and never move toward love of neighbor, they are not much good for anyone. With this parable, Jesus is pushing back. He's pushing back on the idea that knowing and believing the right things is enough. The priest and the Levite each knew enough to do the right thing, but they used their knowledge to look for a reason not to. Okay. We got our priest, we got our Levites, and now we have our Samaritan. The most surprising character in the story would have been the Samaritan. Today, it's, it's used as a synonym of a, a compassionate person who does the right thing to help others, but for first century Jews, this was not the case. Samaritans were people of Jewish descent who, during Israel's exile from, from the land of Israel, uh, they intermarried with people of other national, uh, ethnic, racial backgrounds. For my fellow nerds, uh, in first century Israel, they were worse than muggles. They were mudbloods. Thank you for laughing, nerds. For the people of Israel who who believed they had pure Israeli blood, they looked down on the Samaritans. They called them half-breeds. They viewed them as traitors to Israel. They viewed them as heretics because they didn't practice the law in their way, in the proper places. And this is who Jesus uh, makes the hero of the story, is a Samaritan. Look again to verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He, he went to him and bandaged his wound, pouring in oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. The use of the Samaritan as the hero of the story would be extremely radical for Jesus' time. It would have been transform- transformative if the audience could actually receive it. A theologian and church elder, Justo Gonzalez, in his commentary about Luke, wrote this. The first is that the exclusion of the Samaritan is not only racial or ethnic, it is also religious. From the point of view of the Jewish doctor of the law, the Samaritan was a heretic, who, one who did not serve God properly. Earlier, in Luke 9.50, Jesus had told his disciples, that, that those who were not a part of their group but were doing good in Jesus' name should be allowed to continue. He had also refused to allow his disciples to call fire down from heaven on a village that did not receive them. Now it is the Samaritan heretic who is the obedient servant of God. Thus, the parable has much to say about recognizing the action of God in those whose theology we find faulty, in itself a very, very valuable lesson in these times of theological and political polarization. That's theological speak for this. For Jesus, he's saying, what good is your correct theology if it doesn't lead to obedience like this Samaritan servant of God? For the lawyer who questions Jesus, 
There would have been no room in his thinking for this. For our current political discourse, there is no room for this thinking. What happens when the person we disagree with, the person we think is wrong about everything, what happens when they do what the Bible says is the right thing to do? Either my theology or my political opinions aren't as great as I think they are, or my enemies aren't as bad or as different as I think they are. Jesus is brilliant in how he stretches their imagination for what could be in the world to let go of the small vision they have and to grab onto something that is far bigger and far more inclusive simply by saying, be like this Samaritan. It's radical. This is the way Jesus seeks to turn the world upside down, to bring real solutions to real problems, to bring healing and reconciliation through the world, through unexpected people doing unexpected things. Look one more time at our passage today to see how Jesus finishes his teaching. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Notice he didn't repeat the word Samaritan. He's wrestling with this. He didn't say the Samaritan was the one. He said the man who had mercy on him. He's trying. I think he's trying. He's he's struggling to deal with Jesus' teaching because it is such a stretch. And so Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and be like the Samaritan. One more look to Justo Gonzalez's commentary. If that is the question, Jesus' final injunction to the lawyer, go and do likewise, does not simply mean go and act in love to your neighbor, but rather go and become a neighbor to those in need. No matter how alien they might be, it's not just a matter of loving and serving those who are near us, which is what neighbor means, but also of drawing near to those that for whatever, who for whatever reason, racial, ethnic, theological, political, may seem alien to us. I love that. We stop looking for enemies and we start looking for neighbors. This is what we talk about around here when we use the phrase dangerous justice and mercy. This is what's going on in this parable. First, it starts with compassion. The Samaritan took pity on him, it says. Even though this Jewish man would probably have looked down on him, would have seen him as his enemy, he drew close and he had compassion. The next thing he does is he gives tangible care. He doesn't just say, I love you, peace be with you. He binds up his wounds. He he takes care of him physically. He took a risk to even go near this man. It also cost him something. It literally cost him something out of his own pocket. He wasted his extra, he wasted his time. He did. He had a journey he was on and he stopped. He missed deadlines because he decided to put this man on his donkey and take him to some place where he could get taken care of. And he paid for it out of his own pocket. And then lastly, follow up. It says, he says, when I return, he's coming back to check on this man. He's not just saying, hey, hope it goes great. He's coming back. He wants to make sure the job is finished. He wants to make sure that this person who was a stranger, potentially an enemy, becomes a neighbor. He wants to see it through. And this is what Jesus says go and do likewise. And I know people get a little uncomfortable when we use the word dangerous when we talk about justice and mercy. But we do that on purpose. 
It needs to catch our attention. Jesus is telling us to keep our eyes open. Don't look for ways to avoid other people's problems. Don't look for ways to make excuses or pass, uh, pass blame. Look for those who need the love and care of Jesus, even, even people that are uncomfortable to love. Even when it's gonna cost you time and money, to go and do likewise will not be convenient or comfortable, it will cost us something, and that's what we mean when we say dangerous justice and mercy. It costs us something. And this, I believe, is how Jesus is going to change the world. This is how his people, his church, are supposed to interact with the world. We find reasons to see others not as enemies, but to see them as our neighbors. We look to make the vulnerable our neighbor. We find ways to serve. The Bible says over and over that we are to care, take care of widows, orphans, immigrants. And no matter what my opinions are about what our government should do with vulnerable people, with poor people, with widows, with orphans and immigrants. Whatever the government says, I know what the Bible says his people are supposed to do. We're to welcome them, love them, invite them to go from being stranger to neighbor. A few weeks ago, I, I introduced Discovery Bible Study. And this is a big part of Discipleship Pathways, Discovery Bible Study. It's a big part, like it's what we're doing in, in, in our missional communities. It's what we're doing in many of our life groups. It's what we're doing with our students here, Discovery Bible Study. It's a great tool. One of the things I love about Discovery Bible Study is that every study, we ask the question, who needs our help? How can we help them? I love that. We don't just go to the Bible looking for ways to fill up our own souls and making sure we have correct beliefs. We look for ways to live our beliefs out. We look for ways to, uh, to proactively love our neighbors. And so this week, I wanna challenge you with some application. As you study the Bible this week, either as an individual or in your community, don't skip this question. Who needs our help and how can we help them? Last week, I made the case that the call of the church, the call of Christians is not to gain power, not to enforce Christian rule from the top down and try to make the world in our image. And I said this week was part two because I believe that, that the call to Christians is to be like Jesus, to serve and to sacrifice, to change the world from the bottom up. What if every church everywhere was constantly focused on this kind of love of neighbor? What if we took this parable seriously and lived it out? I think that would change the world. Slowly and surely, that would impact the world. I believe that, that when we would go to proclaim the gospel, we would need very few words because we've already lived out the gospel in tangible ways over and over and over again. That's the vision that Jesus gives us with this parable. Here's how we're to see and interact with the world. Stop making enemies, start making neighbors. And Jesus said it's so important. Don't forget, eternal life is at stake. That's what, that's what he talks about at the beginning of the passage. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This is the parable that Jesus gives him. Why? Why is this so important? Well, because of this. Because by living in this way, we proclaim with our lives that Jesus is Lord. It's showing that not only have our beliefs been transformed, but so have our lives our beliefs have been transformed in this way. The New Testament, Paul says in Romans that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He says in Colossians that we were once God's enemies, but through Christ we have reconciliation with God. While we were his enemies, what did he do? 
He didn't leave us there. He served us. He sacrificed. He died for us who were his enemies so that we might become his family. You see, I think Jesus doesn't want, to just see our, want us to see ourselves as a Samaritan. I think he also wants us to see us ourselves in the guy who's bloodied and beaten on the side of the road. Robbed and left for dead. And this is a metaphor for, for who we are when we are lost in our sins. And it's Jesus who saves our lives, who cares for us, who patches us up, who provides a way. He's saying for us, this is what I've done for you. If you believe and receive this, go and do likewise. I'm gonna invite the band up and we're gonna continue to worship today. We're gonna continue to ask God to transform us. Not just our beliefs and our opinions, but how those take root in our lives in real and tangible ways. That as we seek to interact with the world around us, we stop trying to figure out who our enemies are and we start looking to make neighbors to make the stranger become family. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you. We start with just gratitude. None of this is empowered by me or us. God, it's only empowered by the fact that while we were your enemies, you died for us. You saved us. You took on our sin and our suffering on the cross. And we are so grateful. And it's out of that gratitude that we ask not that you just transform our opinions and our minds, but our whole lives. You tell us to go and do likewise. Lord, help us to leave this place today. Going to your word each and every day and, and asking ourselves, not just how can I grow closer to Jesus, but who needs our help and how can we help? May we go from this place today, not in a spirit of fear, but in a spirit that's overflowing with the transformative love of Jesus Christ. That's not just for me, but it's for my neighbor. Even the neighbor I didn't want to choose. Even the neighbor that's hard to love. Give us eyes to see people the way that you see them, Lord. Created in your image. All of us fallen and in need of your grace. Lord, teach us this week in real ways, what it means to love our neighbor as ourself. We give this to you and we worship you. And we don't want to just worship you with words and songs with our whole lives. God, let this be a catalyst for how we might do that this week. We pray in Jesus' name.